Welcome to the Atheist Podcast. I'm Aaron, And I'm Kelly. Atheist is where we will explore American cultural trends through the lenses of a devout theist and a devout atheist. We will discuss the messiness of being human, the latest in social science, psychology, and American culture, and what any of it has to do with Homo sapiens' longtime preoccupation with religion. Hey, Kelly. How's it going? It's an exciting day. It's an exciting day. We got some pretty exciting news this past week. Um, So we are starting our next theme, which is uh, finitude or the knowing that things will end. And there is a person, an author, that is the expert in finitude. Um, He is New York Times bestseller, Oliver Berkman, and he happens to be a hero of both of ours. Yes, we love it. We love that book. He's going to be joining us on the next episode of the pod. So you will definitely have to tune in and hear our conversation with Oliver. Yeah, we're super excited. You know, as a fledgling podcast to... To have somebody who's a New York Times bestseller and specifically him because we just really relish that book. Yeah, I think I have maybe five copies of the book at my house right now. <laughs> like I, I I read it and um, it it's a book that Kelly and I both have just recommended to so many people. We actually re- 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 recommended it to each other. Yeah. Um, and I've after I read it, I just I ordered like six more copies and I just started handing them out to people. It was yeah. like, Hey, I think you need to read this book. Hey, I think, you know, yeah. and the the kinds of conversations that were sparked as a result of, of reading that book. I, I think I've told you this, but I have a friend who quit her job after she read the book. Um, yeah, she, she just, you know, is at a point in her life where she's got four kids. She's been working at this, you know, the same job for a long time. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was a situation where her husband started at the company and she was, she had a different job, which was like kind of a high powered Mm -hmm. job, but then the company started taking off and they needed more help. And so she moved over there to help and, you know, I mean, grown into this great business, but then she was kind of like, well, is this my dream, Mm -hmm. you know? And, and I'm at a point where I could pursue it, you know, that me stepping away, I, I could do it. And so She's like, that's what I'm. I'm gonna do it, and because yeah. I and so I asked her because I was like, wait, you're quitting? What's happening? And yeah. or you know, taking a leave of absence, I guess I think is what she's yeah. saying as of now. She might come back. We're not yeah. sure, but um, she's like, well, I read that book you gave me. <laughs> <laughs> what did you expect yeah. me to do? <laughs> she's like, oh, okay. <laughs> you showed me what was real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and so the book if you haven't read this book we encourage you to go get it or download it i think you can you can also get it on your library um apps and listen to it as you're mm-hmm. you know and going he's got a great british accent so <laughs> if it's if you're an audiobook person and you love a british accent it's a good one yeah sure. yeah it's funny like i loved listening to it this time cuz i i listened to it again or i'd read it the first time and i listened and i, I was yeah. like oh such personality it's yeah. great yeah um but the idea being I mean, he talks about so much in the book, but the basic premise um, that he starts with, the thesis, is that that in the title, 4,000 weeks, weeks is um, the average lifespan. 80 years of human life is 4,000 weeks. 4,000 weeks. And I remember when I first, uh, I learned about him, I listened to an interview um, 
Krista Tippett on being. And I, I was fascinated and got the book right away. And and then I started walking around and just asking people, how many weeks do you think that we live? Yeah. And I asked a teenager and they were like 124,000. And I was <laughs> like, mm, try again. But then I asked somebody who was like 64, yeah. you know, yeah. who yeah. I was like, okay, you're, you've lived, um, I'm like, without doing the math in your head, yeah. how many, yeah, how many weeks? And I think he still said like 32,000. Yeah. Yeah. So we have no concept of like how short our lives are. Yeah. Um, it's and and so we should say four thousand weeks, mm -hmm. but then kind of the the subtitle is time management for mortals. Yeah, and um, and that's where kind of the book gets into this concept of trying to optimize our time yeah. and get you know trying to fit in enough and the frenetic pace that we try to mm -hmm. keep up, especially in you know I mean he's talking about sort of culture in America and in the the UK, but mm -hmm. um, in in cultures, which I, I actually, I mean, I think European cultures are better about this than American cultures. Yeah. We're probably one of the worst as far as like, you know, this just like relentless yeah. um, grinding. Yeah. But it's 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 definitely a byproduct of capitalism, but it's also a byproduct of just our values. Yeah. And as we, as a culture. Yeah. And he outlines, and I think this is really interesting. Um, that you know, in terms of the Protestant work ethic and work ethic, and uh, the theologian John Calvin, who mm -hmm. uh, is Calvinism is alive and well in America, and that idea of um, basically of the elect of certain people mm -hmm. are chosen by God to be you know saved, and others are not. This, this is, this is the, you know, the belief system. And so we work to do good works. We work to do all these things to be part of the elect. And, um, you don't know, I mean, that's a, I mean, thinking about that being part of the, the fabric of yeah. American yeah. Christianity and, and thus capitalism. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it's, that's pretty scary. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. It's scary and interesting. Scary and interesting. <laughs> so we were talking earlier about this, the the opposite of optimization. Yeah. Uh, and you were telling me about a theory you have. I thought it might be kind of fun to share your theory. Yeah. So optimization. So I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Um, and I'm sure his book had a lot to kind of add to my brain <laughs> in thinking about this. Um, but what is the opposite of optimization? And my my idea is that it the opposite is actually becoming, and I'll explain what that means. So I have this theory that in in each human, we we have a divine spark and also a, a kind of a core lack. And this isn't just my idea. These are just from people I've read and teachers and things. Um, I didn't like come up with this, but so a divine spark and a core lack and that those two things kind of juxtaposed together creates this passion. And the original sense of the word passion is suffering, right? Yeah. So even the fact that that term passion has turned into, right, this kind of like a frenetic excitement, mm -hmm, right, mm -hmm. kind of speaks to our culture also, but a passion originally means suffering. So this divine spark and this 
lack form this suffering, which creates this longing in everybody, this existential longing for something, for meaning, for purpose, for whatever. And we have choices in how we're going to fill the, that yeah. longing. Yeah. And on, on one side, we can choose optimization. We can try to improve ourselves. We can try to, you know, uh, just be the best you can be, you know, all these things. And that in doing that, it it is really a reflection of just ourselves. We're kind of looking to get to that next thing that's going to fill that that sense of suffering, that sense of passion. But it, what it does is it just kind of becomes this closed loop system where we're still, we just, it sends us right back into the mm -hmm, suffering. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't really ever solve the problem, um, which he talks about so much in the book, right? That the more we try to fulfill that need um, of like, oh my gosh, I'm working so hard, we just end up working harder, right? Right, right. For any of the things we cross off our list, just more things fill the list. So it just becomes this closed loop system. The other option, and I'm sure there's more than one, you know, more than these two options, but these, this is this is my napkin uh, philosophy that I wrote down on a napkin one day. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other option is this becoming, which is really just an open stance of presence, which instead of trying to optimize, we just become aware of opportunities to reflect love to other people. And when we do that, when we stand in presence, when we're open to receiving and giving love, then that energy moves outward instead of moving us back into that suffering. Not that we're not going to suffer, but that we're not kind of going back to that, that existential kind of core suffering, um, so it gives us that opportunity to move outside of us. So it becomes this kind of economy of grace, this mm -hmm. kind of, um, yeah, this economy of grace. You you'd used a, a phrase um, earlier when you were describing it to mm -hmm. me, and you're like that you, when you be, can, can be present and available to reflect love to other people, mm -hmm. that then you become what you reflect. Yeah. And I thought that was such a profound way to think about it. Mm -hmm. And it made me think about um, a book that I really love. It's by Gia Tolentino mm -hmm. and um, it's called Trick Mirror. Mm. And it's about how the, the internet distorts our perception of the world and ourselves mm. and uh, how that when we enter this that space of the internet or social media we're we're trying to satisfy a longing yeah and and there's a lot of research around this especially like looking at uh, social media habits for you know teenagers and and um y young adults especially the, those cohorts of people who seem to have really more negative mental health consequences as a result of of use um but that it what it does is like you're you go into it trying to fill this longing but mm -hmm. it just creates more. more yeah and um as opposed to the that like deep satisfaction that you have or that i i feel it you know when you have when you are like trying to be present and loving mm -hmm. to someone um and you have that really powerful connection deep connection mm -hmm. with someone and you're like man that was so like deeply satisfying yes and it makes you not want 
for anything. Yeah. And it's yeah. that's that place of contentment that we all yeah. want to find. And um, so anyway, don't look on the internet for it. Because it ain't there. Because <laughs> it ain't there. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, that's something that comes up in um in Berkman's book too, is this idea. He's talking about time and time management, which makes it seem like, you know, he's he's a productivity well, guy. Well, he, he was kind of riffing because he he kind of, I if I as I recall, he's talking about he kind of became obsessed with some of these like productivity techniques over yeah. time and tried a lot of them on and yeah. You know, yeah. And did a column for the yeah. Guardian, right? Yeah. But he talks so much about um kind of the role of relationship and intimacy. And, you know, when we are are in this kind of uh, search for and hunt for like the best way to optimize, to use our time, um, we tend to then not be present for relationships. Yeah. Um, cause you can't optimize a friendship, right? Yeah. Um, you can't, those are just things that. Well, if you're trying to squeeze like more in, Mm-hmm. You're always going to be like pulled out, pulled mm-hmm. away, you know, I think on some deep level, like, mm-hmm. and, and that's the, one of my favorite things about the book is where he, when he talks about the, the joy of missing out rather yeah. than the fear of missing out FOMO, yep. right. Is that the, the fact that you have this limited amount of time mm-hmm. and that you are choosing how to spend that time is what makes it valuable. Yes. And it's, it. It, that's what bestows meaning. Yep. And I thought, it, as soon as I read it, I'm like, that is the right, is so the right way that's to think right about it. the right answer. Yeah, <laughs> it is the right answer. Um, the other thing I was thinking about, and this is the, the when you're talking, we're talking about longing and the book, um, Bittersweet, Susan Cain's yeah. book, Bittersweet, which book. is is definitely about longing and how we find joy um or, or meaning in life mm-hmm. through the paradoxes of life. Mm-hmm. And th- this is an, an idea that I, has preoccupied me a lot, which is that I always kind of refer to it as like being inside the paradox. I don't know. But it mm-hmm. is, is like that, that there is um, that to know, yeah, great joy, you have to know great suffering. suffering. And it's, it's being able to like hold like both of those things at the same time yep. and like allow them to to be Mm -hmm. is, is, is really important for deep meaning. Yeah, absolutely. Are you somebody who, um, like, could you ever live in a climate that's like 75 year round? Oh, because then you're like, I I don't know if it's nice or not anymore right? because you're just constantly in it. I do like the, I don't know. I mean, I could probably get used to it. We lived uh, in um, on Oahu for a month, uh-huh. um, and I would I would do that yeah. again. Yeah. I would definitely do that again. Um, and it was basically it wasn't it was a little warmer than that, but it was basically perfect yeah. every single day. And we just hiked a ton and yeah. sat next to the ocean. And I was just like, "This is amazing. This is amazing." <laughs> I mean, I would like to think that I could do like uh, that I would love it because yeah. who right who wouldn't yeah but for some reason I just know this Those about seasons, myself that yeah. yeah like I need to know it needs to be really cold mm-hmm. so that I appreciate <laughs> the warmth and it needs to be really hot so I appreciate it yeah. when it gets cool yeah. and uh, I don't know I, and uh, even like this summer you know I'm off for the summer so I have like more time 
and I find it impossible to like work on my writing mm. when I have more time. Like when I when I yeah when, when it, you're more crunch for time. When I'm more you're, crunch for yeah, time, yeah. or when I have more things that I like, uh, like more more things to do that are like oh I gotta do this. Then I'm like oh. But no, now I can carve out some time to yeah. write. Yeah. And so if all my time is just like, oh, I could do whatever I want, then yeah, you writing sort of less focused. Yeah, yeah. writing kind yeah. of goes down the list. Yep. yep. Um, so yeah. It's interesting. I love all the seasons. There's not I, yeah. I, I really do. And that's one of the things I do love about living in St. Louis is that you get to have all the seasons. And yeah. um typically they're not, it's pretty hot and humid here today, but Typically, none of them are like the the winters and the summers are not terribly brutal. So it's a great place. Yeah, you guys should come live in summers. I don't know. Yeah, I don't think they, we've had a pretty good. Summer it's been so. a pretty good summer. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I will. I will give you that. <laughs> so, um, can I give you? Can I give you a little uh, story about uh, a little Jesus story? Yeah. Let's, okay. Let's do it. So this is funny. I so this is a sermon I heard. Uh, shout out to Matt Miofsky, uh that where I literally heard the sermon and I went and changed my life immediately. Like your friend who read this book and then quit her job. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's the similar, uh, message too. So there's a story about Jesus where he goes and he, he's finding his disciples, you know, and he says, you know, drop your nets, follow me, you know, stop fishing, come with me. And people, somebody's like, you know, I got to go bury my dad. And he's like, Nope, just follow me. You know, I got to say goodbye to my family. Nope. Just follow me. You know, and and so you read that story and you're like, Jesus is a jerk. <laughs> you know, like these are important things to do. Yeah, like yeah. say goodbye to your family, bury your father, right? Um, I have a job as a fisherman, people are relying on me, you yeah, know, people yeah. but um he says, you know, so it's like, is Jesus a jerk here or is an egomaniac or he's just like looking he's a guru looking for followers? What's going on? And in this sermon, uh he said you know, it's it's not that those things are not good. Those things are good. But sometimes we have to let th- go of things that are good to find things that are better. Yeah. And I feel like that's exactly what Oliver is saying in this book. Like, mm. we only have so much time. Yeah. And we only have so much capacity. And so there's only so many choices. We can't do it all. Yeah. Um, and so that idea that um, – so I've started thinking about – like time and like our capacity for what we can do with our lives as just like it's physics, you know, like I can only do so much, but when I let go of something, then I have space and something else will come into that space, Yeah, you know? And I love that. Um, and that's even that idea of like that reflecting love, right? We have to, it, the, the optimization is like constantly filling. Mm-hmm. It's trying to fill without letting anything go. Yeah. So then we're forced to let things go, which is that suffering. Whereas like if I'm, um, if I'm constantly kind of releasing and letting go in order to make space, then I can be ready for when things come that I can, mm, that you have capacity, that I have capacity. So it's all, it's like this constant state of, you know, release and receive, release yeah. and receive, which is just a beautiful, I think, rhythm. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's so, nice. I like that story. Yeah, that's my Jesus story it's for the day. One. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, Matt Miafsky. Well, and I think that that um, idea of having space mm-hmm. is kind of connected to something else that we had just been talking about, which is um, you were telling me this anecdote about how um, this woman had shared with you that she was working so hard to slow down. Yeah. And, and I'm like that it's fun. It's a funny comment, but it, mm-hmm. but it's true because um, at least for maybe for us in particular, because we're sevens on the Enneagram right. and like, we're just constantly trying to go, 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 go. But um, that having space or capacity requires um intention yeah and being like okay am i am i at capacity Mm -hmm. am i not like where is that sweet spot and so that you're you know you have to check in with yourself to know if where are you in that bandwidth yeah yeah you you were also saying earlier about you know we were talking about the idea of uh time and patience and that you have a different capacity for time with mm. your daughter now than you did when your the boys were little. Yeah. So the in the book he is talking about deep time mm-hmm. um, and just you know letting things take however long they take because some things just take a lot of time. Yeah. Um, and one of those things you talked about was like a toddler is mm-hmm. an exercise in that <laughs> things just take how long they take. Yep. Um, and. Elaine, um, our, our, she's going to be three on Sunday and, um, she's definitely in super independent mode and really wants to dress herself and buckle herself in her car seat and those sorts of things. And, you know, it's, she's, well, and she's also like, she's the most kinesthetically aware kid I've ever seen in my life. She is so. Yeah. She's going to be a good little athlete. Oh my gosh. I'm yeah. I'm excited to see that. Yeah. Um, so of course she wants to buckle her seatbelt and yeah. put on her shoes. And yep. Yep. Me do it. Me do me it. Do and, it. And when the boys were little, I mean, they all kids go through that phase, right? They're trying to assert their independence yeah. and um, the, the me do it. And uh, I just remember feeling so much more like anxious, uh-huh. you know, yeah. uh, when it, when they were little. And I don't know if it's just that, I've gotten older and you just, maybe you chill out a little bit more as you get older, or maybe I'm just, maybe I'm just a more Zen person now at this stage of my life, but it doesn't, you know, you're like, Oh, this is going to take a while, but you're just (laughs) trying to, it doesn't like ruffle my feathers kind of in the same way anymore. Well, and that, you know, and that is, the capacity for discomfort, right? Mm-hmm. So our, he talks about like anxiety is being like, I'm not comfortable with being uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> so I would rather be anxious than oh, sit yeah. in this time yeah. that just feels awkward or yeah. like I should be doing something else yeah. or I, you know. And that's actually maybe, and that, that that's a good way to put it because I do find myself feeling much more content in that yeah. in those kinds of, we're just like okay. We're just gonna yeah. be sitting here and not yeah. not feeling as much that I need to go go. Well, and you've disconnected so much from social media. Do you think that has had an impact? Uh, you know, I think it probably has had a tremendous impact in in, in genuine in just like literally how much time I have. Yeah. Um. Because most people, and I don't know that how much time I was spending on social media. I assume it was probably quite a bit less than most people. But mm-hmm. um, I mean, the statistics are pretty staggering. Like. Some people 
I mean, I think the average is like two and a half hours a day. Yeah. Um, that's a lot of time. That's a lot. of time. I mean, think about somebody do the math. If it's two and a half hours a day, like how many of your weeks are you spending yeah. on social media in this trick mirror, right? That makes you feel yeah. uh, like a worst version of yourself or like distorts your, your view of the world or other people. Oh, also, did you know that if, um, there's a study that if, that you actually like your friend, you, you like your friends less that are on social media. Really? Yes. <laughs> what? Like if you're on social media and you're like looking at other people's social media channels, you because actually you get like resentful, them. like you're yeah. resentful of yeah. them I or think, something? I guess on some sort of deep Jealousy. Level. I'll have to or... dig it up. But yeah, I remember yeah, reading it that. Just, it probably does not spur the most, yeah. the best of human yeah. qualities. Yeah. So anyway, I was like, well, I'd like to like my friends more, I guess. So maybe I shouldn't do this. see what they're up to. <laughs> uh yeah, but that makes sense, actually. Yeah. So anyway, but yeah, you're like, why did she post that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How dumb. Uh, yeah. I know. And then and then it's I don't know, it's just so what it's whatever. It's so whatever. It is crazy. But um, yeah, two and a half hours a day. And then you start going, OK, well, what could I do with two and a half hours a day? I guess I could I could read more. I could mm-hmm. write more. I could go running. I could hang out with my wife. I could hang out with my kids. Like there's just so I could just much. just literally be here. I could just be still. I could just be still and like look out my window. Yeah. Gaze. Drink some coffee. Watch the dog run. I mean, yeah. I don't take more walks, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Notice. Just notice things. Um, what was I going to tell you? Oh, the this idea of patience. Mm-hmm. Uh he talks about dun, dun, dun. is it the patience becomes a form of power yeah do you have that quote right there i do you want patience, to read that yeah patience becomes a form of power in a world geared for hurry the capacity to resist the urge to hurry to allow things to take the time they take is a way mm-hmm. to gain purchase on the world to do the work that counts and to derive satisfaction from the doing itself instead of deferring all of your fulfillment for the future. Yeah. Yeah. So that, oh my gosh, that quote, that's, I think that's my favorite quote in the book. And he tells a story, I think pretty soon after that about, um, some, I think it was a friend of his or, um, somebody that he read about their capacity just to read and how they had lost the capacity Mm. to sit and read. Yeah. And that he would read for a couple sentences and then be like, and I need, I just need something else. Check something. I need to check something. I need a little hit. And man, I feel, I can feel myself do that. Yeah. And it's, that is just such a, I remember feeling, um, this is when I was, you know, a couple of years ago when I was, when I was still on Facebook and, you know, that whole posting your life thing. And I would Mm -hmm. be living my life and I'd feel that impulse to like, record it you know like oh i need to take a picture of this and yes, post it or yes, yes. and that impulse and when i stop doing that noticing that kind of phantom impulse and just being like wow that's that's crazy but i feel like that's the impulse i need to follow now is yeah. is that impulse of oh like i can't just sit and be patient with this task that needs to take what it takes. And he talks about, you know, toddlers taking the time, but also reading. like reading a book, like it only takes, it, it, 
it takes the time it takes. Yeah, you can't do it faster. You can't. And, and not if you want to understand it. Yeah. And actually, that made me think of, so there's a, a woman who is a scholar of uh, of reading, mm-hmm. and her name's Marianne Wolf. Oh, yeah. And she, I think she's in California now. She, she was on maybe the East Coast before. But anyway, so she um, wa- tells this story. And so she studies that, yes, we are, yeah. like, losing our capacity to, like, read deeply. Yeah. Um, and she found that in herself, this person who is a scholar of mm-hmm. of reading and literature and can read these really complicated texts. And so her favorite author was um, Herman Hesse. Mm-hmm. And she, I, I can't remember which work it was, but she got home one day and, and sat down and wanted to read this book that she had read before. And she she couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. And and it freaked her out. She's like, my brain is broken. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, but because, so this is this is important, and this is important from a perspective, especially like we think about um, generative AI and mm-hmm. what it can do and what we should let it do for us. So language is an is innate, meaning that you come into the world mm-hmm. already with your brain designed to learn how to acquire lang- language. Yeah. Like you don't actually have to have anyone teach you that. Mm-hmm. Like sit down in a formal way. Uh, reading and writing is not innate. It's a neural network, meaning you either it's like a muscle. So you either strengthen it or you weaken it if you use it. Yeah. And um, so in her situation, right, her neural network for reading these really complicated texts had started to deteriorate because she was spending more time on quick information, which is how we most of us spend our time is like, you know, immersed in quick bites of information twitter microblogging threads yeah email like all of it right yeah but it's um so she she was like okay i have to so i think it took her six weeks or something but she came home every day and just sat down until until it came back Mm -hmm. and then she was like i could i could do it again so she had to but she had to To be intentional she had to retrain her brain to do it brain yeah yeah. So when we when we you know use ChatGPT to write an essay for us, right? Like we're not strengthening those skills of okay, how do I can construct something um, that's coherent and and logical, and what mm-hmm. points are most important? How should I organize this information? You're like you're you're deferring that to to something else. Yeah. And and I think that's kind of scary for people's critical thinking skills. Yeah. For sure, but he, okay. So he, okay, now we're gonna get off a little bit of the of the four thousand weeks, and I'm just gonna throw this out there, okay, as as a as a nugget for us to chew on, okay, a chicken nugget to chew on, <laughs> uh, for seed planting. I'm mixing all the metaphors for another because we're gonna do a conversation about AI. Yeah, but I listened to a podcast uh, with Neil deGrasse Tyson and oh, uh, Ilya, Ilya yeah. Delio who. Ilya Delio is a is a nun who is brilliant scientist, uh, and obviously uh, uh, Tyson is amazing. And they're talking about evolution, and they're talking about AI and technology as an evolutionary process. So when we look at t- technology that animals and other creatures, non-human creatures use, like beaver dams are a technology for beavers. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, clamshells are a technology for clams. <laughs> so they've evolved to create these technologies, right? Yeah, yeah. And we wouldn't necessarily 
look at a clam and separate the technology of the shell from the clam itself, mm-hmm. right? We look yeah. at it as a whole. So his argument, their argument is these phones and AI, like that we've had AI forever. You know, like we have AI when we, you know. Oh, yeah, we use it every single we use it, day. And our, we our have, Netflix is telling us what they think right, we should watch. Right. I mean, <laughs> we yeah, we like we've been using it. We've done, you know, we've for all these different things. Um, but it is, it is, it is, it is the shell for our clam. And hmm. how now does that make us as the clam softer and more fragile because it's going to take away something from us, Yeah, you know, and, uh, or do we kind of buy into it as just, this is next evolutionary phase of human existence. Hmm. And, do we, do we have become to, someone's dinner? Do we? Yeah. <laughs> do we become someone's dinner because we can't read or write anymore? Um, or do we figure out how to use it as a tool so that again, maybe in this whole you know theory of capacity, maybe that's just something we don't have. We don't need the capacity for that anymore, and something, something else, else comes can. in, and now we. Now we become, we can teleport or something. like (laughs) Robocops or something. Yeah, yeah. we become like (laughs) superhuman. I don't know. I mean, reading and writing take up a lot of space in the human uh, uh, creature. So I'm not, I'm not arguing for this, but. I don't know that they take up as much time in the human creature as we would like them to. Yes, right. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I think there are other things. Or believe. Yeah, and certainly if, if we're, if we're, uh, Outsourcing reading and writing, uh, and we're filling it with, you know, microblogs and, you know, kitty cat videos, <laughs> then I don't think this is, uh, this doesn't, this doesn't meet Berkman's litmus test of does no. this diminish me or, you know, make me bigger. Yeah. I think it yeah. definitely is diminishing. Yeah. I mean, I think there's always like, I don't know. I mean, I guess in, in a, in a world that's trying to be generous or like a view that's trying to be generous towards mm-hmm. technology, technology and AI or like what it has the capacity to do. I mean, I I don't know, but I, I was going to say like humans are so um, biased and kind of egotistical and selfish and narcissistic. Like maybe it's <laughs> like, okay, if we could have like some, you know, mediator, that's a little bit more neutral, yes. but then, but the problem is like, it's just in, it's embodied the AI is just embodied with the information that we're giving it, which is also in probably like riddled also, with all that yes. same stuff. Well, I don't know. Yeah. No, I think that's a really good point. Like the clam is not a, <laughs> and I'm so, going to use some Calvinist language here, but is not a fallen creature, right? <laughs> like we are, I'm not saying that humans are fallen creatures, but I mean, you know, we definitely have the tendency for, um, there's yeah. not like an Adam and Eve of clams. No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Might maybe, be. Might, maybe in some, <laughs> in some mythological clam world, clam universe. Um, so that idea of, yes, we're so biased and, uh, you know, we want to have this, you know, this, we want to have this generous, uh, approach to technology, but we're just, we're just, we're, we're gluttons. Right. And in, in a way, but then you look at, and there's this great article, I think, is it Kevin Kelly, who's the publisher of Wired magazine, I think. Um, he wrote this article about um, the Amish and the way that the Amish adopt technology. Mm. 
which is fascinating. So they don't actually eschew technology the way we think they do. I mean, they do, but not all technology. So what mm. they'll do is they'll have somebody that is assigned in the community to use, you know, they'll talk as a community and be like, we need to figure out iPhones. Like, is this something that we want to use mm. or, you know, smartphones? And so they'll give one person in the community an iPhone and that person will use it and they'll kind of watch. They'll watch the behavior of that person. That person will take notice. They're so intentional. And then they basically do what Berkman said. Is this something that is generative, that is making me a better person? Or is this something that is diminishing my humanity? Yeah. And then as a community, once one person is starts it, tries it, then based, you know, which is very scientific. Yeah, also, that's cool. And then they'll they'll vote as a community so whether they, to adopt it or not. Do they adopt the phone? I don't know. I hope they were like no. I we can. Yeah, I don't know if they did phones or not, but um, yeah. So I mean, because it all starts with right. Yeah. I mean, the technology of like this I mean, is giving me more be, time. That's the. I remember you told me. Um, and maybe we've already said this story on the podcast, but we could say it again. So you were talking about um, being at the bar with John Ryan. Oh, yeah. Tell tell that story. Yeah, that being at this bar and like and uh, a friend of ours just raising up the phone and like the bar was quiet. And he just says, this is the most the biggest unregulated experiment on young minds that has ever, you know, come across. Yeah. The our culture yeah and it just was like all it's just there just with, without any thinking without any or thinking. any real discussion or really any reflection like it's taken us it's taken us so long mm -hmm. to really understand mm -hmm. what it what it does to us and uh yeah and um, that's you know and that's part of who we are as human beings is we have the ability to discern i mean a clam is just gonna it's going to evolve the way a clam needs to survive. But we actually are discerning thriving or not thriving, not necessarily survival. Yeah. Right. I think if and that's part of what I mean, the American government is so dysfunctional. It's it's hard to think that they our legislators will do a good job of trying to to try to put some regulations in place mm -hmm. before things get uh, too too far. Um out of control but i another um i mean i obviously see like good uh, applications for it lauren was telling me a story actually so one of their coworkers, um so they were feeding these radiology scans into an ai um i don't know system oh. and they they caught like a cancer in somebody that they mm -hmm. wouldn't have and then when the actual radiologist looked at the scan they're like oh yeah there it is right there it was super small and um but they wouldn't have been able to see it or like yeah. wouldn't they probably wouldn't have seen it had it not gone so you know in some cases like maybe in medicine you you can see applications where yeah. um especially if you're it's in in partnership with yes. like a human that it can in elevate mm -hmm. um our abilities. I think that is possible. I, my biggest, my biggest yeah. concern is probably like in the immediate, it's just the amount of, of very realistic disinformation that is going to yeah. be developed as a result. Like this next election cycle is going to be bonkers. I bonkers. think with the, this just fake stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. So 
us humans are going to have to really, I mean, when you think about all the bots that have been we're, all we're over screwed. everything, screwed. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, and I mean, I think people that, I don't know, I, I would think that people who spend a lot of time on social media can recognize those bots, but I don't know, oh, man. but people who just kind of jump in once in a while, um, definitely can't. And yeah, just, yeah. Oh man. It's going to be trouble. It's going to be trouble. <laughs> I'm moving. I'm moving to I don't, yeah. Barcelona. Uh, Barcelona. You know, the other thing I wonder about this, this is the, the generations book, which I've talked about before. Yeah. So her big thesis is the, um, the technology increases uh, individualism and mm-hmm. uh, it creates a, a slower life strategy. So mm-hmm. I wonder a slower life strategy. Yes. What does that mean? So what it means is um, in environments where the, like you're much more likely to die, uh-huh. you, you move through like life faster, your life, like these big goals, uh-huh. these milestones, right? People, have so if you like right now if you go to like an aboriginal tribe mm-hmm. where they have don't have any influences with technology they're going to live their lives in a very similar manner um that like kind of hunter gatherers did right mm-hmm. so and even like how what more like what we did maybe you know 150 years ago mm-hmm. you have kids young Younger. you get married young you have kids young and you have a whole bunch because like one out of six is going to die and you're only going to live to be so long and you need to make sure that your kids are ra- are adults before you die mm-hmm. um so everything gets and if you're if you're economic prosperity is connected to uh a gr- like farm labor yeah. you need people to work on the farm sure so you need more just like people around to support what is economically viable yeah so but in our culture that's uh been transformed by technology everything slows down mm-hmm. so okay in order to be economically viable you have to go to college well if you're married and you have kids like that's probably not like the best strategy for getting through college right mm-hmm. so it's better now to delay those things okay. and then um also because you're going to probably like live maybe to your 80s as opposed to you're going to die when you're like 60 mm-hmm. um and and what the finding is actually that like a 40 year old today versus like a 40 year old, I think it was like 50 years ago is biologically three years younger really? uh, because so much of what the tech technology is actually yeah. is making us younger. Yeah. Um, so, so I mean, I like that. Yeah. It's yeah. <laughs> pretty good. <laughs> it's like these, cr- these serums that <laughs> I put on myself. No, it's just like we have better access, like food, nutrition. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I mean, Americans are maybe not the healthiest, but, um, it, in theory, right. Yeah. You, we have the tools at our disposal to, to live longer and, yeah. and we don't do labor that is so as dangerous anymore. Yeah. So there's just a lot of things, um, that sort of contribute to that that just tremendous shift in longevity yeah. in the last hundred years yeah. of, of human life. And it's really transformed the way that we kind of approach and think about time. Yeah. 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 Amazing. Yeah. It's pretty cool. It's pretty interesting. It I mean, it's something I've noticed, but like, it's cool to have um, like put in, to put a name to it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the, the individualism piece is, is something that I'm still kind of wrestling with because I, I sort of think that that, it's not necessarily, I think it's probably more potent in America than in other 
places just because we are so we are already so individualistic as a society Mm -hmm. but part of me is like how is that connected to the like the social media question Mm -hmm. or just like in and the reason maybe it's not social media so much as like the rates of depression and anxiety like Mm -hmm. that those things are going up as we become more like our culture becomes more individualistic Mm -hmm. and I, I don't know did you listen to that podcast with Ezra Klein and um, uh, he had this historian on and uh, I have to find it. Uh, we'll put it in the show notes, but, or we'll edit this out. But um, it, he, he was talking about um, the difference in cultures um, with American culture and even European culture, a lot of European cultures Um or in Asian culture specifically too, that like when, when you go for a job interview, um, we look at like, what is your experience? What is your job? Blah, 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 blah. And what some of these cultures will do is say, I am a father. I am a, Mm. I am a son. And they identify themselves based on their relationship to the community and that's more important than what I have individually achieved, which mm. also goes back to, right, this optimization versus becoming, yeah, right? Yeah. Because they they said, well, why would I want somebody to run my business who hasn't had the experience of taking care of another human being? Because that, or or shown the loyalty of a son, you know, to take care of a parent, you know what I mean? That, that, that there's intrinsically skills and qualities that we have when we live in community and in systems of mm-hmm. of family structures yeah. that are beneficial and we don't value those in America. Yeah. We don't. Yeah. You know? Yeah, uh eight, I think it's something like 88% of of peop- working people in America feel like they work for a company or an organization that doesn't care about them. Yeah. And so the, that that's a big part of the, you know, Barry Waymiller, mm-hmm. um, which is a company here in St. Louis. They started like a whole educational mm-hmm. Institute trying to sort of impart that what it sounds like, you know, the sort of European style of leadership, which is that you can have humanity in how you approach mm-hmm. work. Right. And, and, um, Anyway, there it's like we should we should well the other the other statistic that I thought was interesting is that your um the person you directly report to has more impact on your physical and mental well-being than your doctor. Wow. But it's <gasps> it, of course it does, you know. Wow. But nobody but if you're a manager, you're not necessarily thinking about, hey, you know, the the people that work for me uh, I actually am affecting their physical and, and mental oh well-being and how how important it would be to to recognize that um, in the way that you would approach yeah. work and, and the people that you that you work with and, and to look at it as people that you have the opportunity and mm-hmm. responsibility to care for. Yeah. Can we put that on like every billboard in America? <laughs> I mean, that's huge. Yeah. Yeah. That's so huge. You know, and going back to the Berkman book, he the chapter on um, synchronicity and which is similar to 
Dr. Keltner's um, the 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 collective effervescence, right? Mm-hmm. He talks about how how we gain a sense of connectedness and a feeling of he. I think he describes it as even bigness. Uh, we have a cosmic smallness, but when we're connected to other people, we feel bigger. Yeah. Um, and that part of, you know, what is happening right now in society, particularly with people kind of working from home and this kind of digital nomad society and everything, one of the effects is we've kind of desynchronized our, our lives. Mm. And that he talks about how um, people are actually ha- happier feel more connected even when they're taking vacation at the same time, even if they're not going oh, on vacation yeah, together. I remember that. Yeah. But like, so like even retired people who are not in the workforce, they tend to be happier on the weekends. Yeah. Yeah. Just because they, they have more, gonna, they have more yeah. access to other people. Yeah. And in, he tells this whole story about in, in, uh, the USSR when, uh, they had, um, I forget who it was that they, they, but they created this system to keep their factories open all the time. So people were put in these different categories, like red, blue, green, and you only, you had one day off and, and that day off changed based on what Mm -hmm. group you were in. Mm -hmm. And so people could be in families, like your partner could have a different day off. Oh, so you were never, you were, so you were never. So you'd have a day off, but you didn't have anybody to go hang out with or do anything yeah. with. And um, and he's like, we have kind of created that that desynchronized system for ourselves. And yeah. Yeah. That was very interesting. Yeah, that's an interesting it's an interesting story. That sounds horrible. Horrible. And I guess it ended like in the forties because <laughs> trying to keep the machines on all the time didn't leave much room for the I machines think- to get fixed yeah there's like a similar version of that happening in china now Mm. where you work all the time and then you get like a day off and you spend most of the time traveling home and then you're there for like a couple hours and then you go back oh yeah that's pretty brutal yeah i mean we complain about american culture but you know it's all relative it is all relative yeah yeah and i'm interested in talking and asking him if he has done any studies around this kind of relationship with time in other cultures and what that might look like, because this is definitely, you know, a book about kind of Western culture. I feel like. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. What can we learn from mm-hmm. some of the the practices around the world? Mm-hmm. I mean, he references a lot of um, Buddhist wisdom and philosophy, which, you know, is not necessarily not Western, but um, yeah. But like, is that actually, embedded in yeah i think if there if i had to if i had to pick a practice Mm -hmm. it it would definitely be buddhism for sure and i i recall now i don't know if i've told the story or not but when i was in high school Mm -hmm. did i tell the story um so when i was in high school we're going to become like those old people just (laughs) repeating stories and if you were an avid listener to this podcast you're probably going to hear our stories more more than once and just you know Uh, bear with us so i was a senior in high school we had this world religions class and it was the first time that i was i had a lot of more exposure to just like different philosophies and and belief systems from people around the world and um we read siddhartha 
And we, you know, had this unit on, on Buddhism and I was like, oh my God, this is so much better. <laughs> and then Catholicism. And I remember there was kind of a, I wasn't the only one yeah. that kind of had this like, oh, Epiphany. you know, yeah. hey, other options out here. Yeah. And there's a whisper campaign yeah. <laughs> for all of you to stop going to well, CCD. So, and... so then there were, there were, the parents were like, we have to get rid of this class. <gasps> really? Be- yeah. Because they're, we're going to, we're going to like. You know, they're we're, these kids are going to leave Catholicism. Oh my gosh! And then, which actually, then I'm like, this is so, this is such bullshit, right? Because mm-hmm. I'm like, if you are so afraid that learning about other cultures is going to say, like mean that we don't want to be a part of this one or you know yeah. religions, uh, then that just immediately makes me think that you're full of shit. Yeah. Well, for sure. Yeah. And that your religion, yeah, your religion is pretty small if it can't. Yeah, um, withstand some, yeah. like, critical analysis. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and I'll tell you what, there's a, you know, there's a lot of Jewish people who are Buddhists. There's a lot of Catholics who are also Buddhists. Yeah. When I went to a Sangha for a time, probably about a year, and I would say almost probably 80% of the people that went to that Sangha yeah. We're also pretty devout Catholics. Hmm. So, yeah. yeah. There's a little intermixing there. There's a little interfaith uh, cool. stuff happening. Yeah. I also found when I started kind of researching and digging into Buddhism, it also, I I had these epiphanies where I'd be like, oh, that's what Jesus meant. Mm. Like, hmm. oh, that makes so much more sense now. Yeah. It's all, it's all these different philosophies that are, yeah. that a lot of them are articulating yeah. the same ideas, but they just describe it in a different way. And, mm-hmm. and, and that's one of the wonderful, magical things about life is like when someone turns a phrase or says something in just a very specific mm-hmm. way that you haven't heard it and the way it lands is different. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, I, now I see something that I couldn't see before just because of the way yeah. that that was described. That somehow I knew, but I yeah. couldn't, yeah, articulate. Yeah. And I think, you know, at the at the most fundamental of all religions, and I mean fundamental like fundamentalist, you know, the most dogmatic, I think they all kind of, well, they probably all look alike, but in a fundamentalist way, um, but they're very different. But when you get to those kind of more, mystic mythic levels of Mm -hmm. of all the different religions i think they all look very similar Similar. yeah and that's what um uh we call like the perennial tradition the tradition that kind of moves from that is that is uh congruous with with all the traditions and and that's one of the things I like about Berkman is uh, I was telling you this earlier, like I was so curious when I would listen to interviews with him and read this book and, you know, he'd be quoting like spiritual teachers that I thought were like, you know, that I adore. And um, I was like, what does this guy believe? What does this guy believe? What does he <laughs> think? What does he like? What kind of system does he ascribe to? And I was so curious and I just know it, it doesn't matter. Um, yeah. But I think when you are kind of, and I think that's what he's doing is he's aiming for this really profound, you know, truth that transcends, you know, belief in systems. And yeah. It's just yeah. true. It's just real. Yeah. And he does it in um, a work that is is brief mm-hmm. um, and it's a short book and it's it's so powerful in in what it contains. So if you mm-hmm. have not yet read 4,000 Weeks. Yeah. Um, 
And I think it's Do just it. about to be released as a paperback. Oh, good. I think I just read that in his newsletter. Okay. So, so yeah. An even less expensive version. Yeah. You can get one and roll it up and put it in your back pocket. Yeah. Get one for a friend. Get one for a friend. Um, and definitely join us for the next episode of A Theist, where we will be interviewing New York Times bestselling author Oliver, Oliver Berkman. Berkman. So exciting. As always, thank you to our audience for investing your time and listening to us. Please subscribe, leave some feedback, and rate our podcast. Most importantly, share it with a friend. Our show will only grow because of you. If you have any show suggestions, questions, or thoughts on the show, feel free to write us at atheist at stlpodcast.com. Atheist is produced by Justin Sywell and Trend Media STL. You can follow us and other great podcasts on Instagram at stlpodcasts. Thank you for listening and keep looking for connection.